Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are starting our very new series, our summer of Swayze. Hell yeah. With 1983's The Outsiders. The rivalry between two gangs, the poor greasers and the rich socias, only heats up when one gang member kills a member of the other. Okay, David, how, how have you not seen this film, David? Well, I've never read the book. What? It was not a part of our English curriculum. We read other stuff. Wow. I know this is a very common high school English trope. I think what happened was around the time that a lot of people would have read this book in high mm -hmm. school, the classes I was in, we had like selections of books. That's... Like they would give you four or five options. Mm -hmm. And so you picked which one you wanted to read. That's code for AP. I was trying to be nice about it, <laughs> but I do appreciate that. It was like, pick something that actually interests you and study it instead of just like read this normal random book. And so it never came up on my radar, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know some people who read it. I had kind of heard about it, but it was I was into like sci-fi and just other kinds of books. This wouldn't have been something at the time that I would have been like that interested in reading. Mm -hmm. Now, definitely interested partly because I need to know more about what happened. Yeah, so I read that book in seventh grade, and I distinctly remember that book being the first assigned reading I was ever given where I read ahead from our assignment because I was so invested in the book. I loved it. Yeah, I distinctly remember like the way my classroom looked. It was Coach Wrangler was my teacher. <laughs> like I remember reading this book and reading. I love to read, but reading was very hard for me. So any assigned reading in school was usually torture. And I loved this. So, yeah. And then, of course, as is typical in school, whenever you read a book that has been made into a movie after you do all your stuff for the book, you get to watch the movie in class. So then we watched it. Depending on the movie. Yeah, within reason. And this one is, would certainly be fine at school. Yeah. Now it would be kind of like, well, this is this did not age well. <laughs> uh, the way they treat the girls is heinous. It is. But yeah. I think there's a way to teach that in context. I, I think that's that would be a really good moment for the teacher to pause and be like, this is not acceptable behavior in any situation, regardless of gender. Yeah. This is not how you treat a person that you are attracted to. Absolutely not. Or just a person. So yeah. So that's kind of my only caveat to watching the movie now. So initial thoughts. We talked about this after this movie. I don't think I was in the right mood for it to really capture me. But intellectually, mm -hmm. I felt like it could. Mm -hmm. And I liked the bold choices that were being made. Okay. I think they were very intentional mm -hmm. and on point. And I think that while it feels very melodramatic and you do eye roll, if you can let go of that, which I didn't always while I was watching, because like I said, mm -hmm. just frame of mind. But if you let that go, this is a movie you can get really absorbed by. All right. So let's get into our writing. Uh, we're going to start with the writer of the source material, S.E. Hinton, wrote the original story when she was 15 years old and finished it when she was 16. The film takes place in Oklahoma. That is where she's from. She was a part of every aspect of filming. She stated in several interviews how much she loved the boys that were cast. And since almost all of them were teenagers and away from home with no adult supervisions, she became like a mom to them on and off set. And she remembers them calling her mom. Yeah. Which is 
precious. You've got to have somebody on set that can act like that when you've got that many kids running around, especially considering who's making this movie. She said in an interview back in 2016 that she had so much fun with the boys on set, probably too much. And most of them were actors who were just getting started. And she is still in contact with all of the actors and Francis Ford Coppola. That's the most adorable thing I've ever heard. Sweet. I love that. I, okay. For as much shit as many people give authors when an adaptation of their film comes out, which this film did get some because there was a lot from the book that they they filmed and then they cut out from the movie. Authors don't always have a great experience with the filming of their book. The adaptation part, they usually don't get to be involved. And sometimes authors torpedo the adaptation that's being made. Uh, Please see all of the Fifty Shades of Grey, because those movies could have been good if E.L. James had not been given carte blanche. So it's really nice. It's such a cool thing for your book to get adapted and to have a positive experience, especially with someone like Francis Ford Coppola, who is such a can be very crazy. For him, for for that to have worked so well, I'm very happy for all people involved. Given his track record and knowing what we know about Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. which definitely go check out us talking about Hearts of Darkness, the making of that. Yeah, we talked about the Hearts of Darkness, which was the making of documentary for Apocalypse Now. We covered Apocalypse Now on our Patreon, which should be available for free to all people now. But also The Godfather. Mm-hmm. He had Mario Puzo very involved in the Godfather process. Maybe not as much as this, mm-hmm. but you know, in in talking about Hearts of Darkness, he had the book on set. Yeah. They were using the book sometimes as the script. Mm-hmm. He's very very interested in preserving the adapted work that he makes. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, there are lots of scripts that he wrote himself mm-hmm. like The Conversation. That's his original work. But when he adapts something, he really tries to stay close to it so okay so we're getting to like a weird place with the writers because essie hinton wrote the book Mm -hmm. kathleen roel wrote the screenplay Uh uh-huh that was her very first screenplay after this she wrote joy of sex hear no evil malibu shoes and killing mr griffin which was a tv movie her script was thrown out by coppola he wrote his own and filmed the new screenplay but the writers guild made a decision that meant coppola could not get credit so yeah. Kathleen Roel gets credit for it. So we kind of get like this confluence of like a couple other people wrote the source material, but then we have Francis and Francis's history with book authors is very much like I'm sticking to the source material. So we kind of have that in the mix. So what do we think about the writing? I'm glad that that script got thrown out, whatever it was, because I'm glad that he took this script. All of the faults that I have with mm-hmm. this movie come in the directing. Mm hmm. And like I said, I enjoy the boldness of the choices. I don't mm-hmm. always think I like what they are. Yeah. But in terms of the story, the story is so good. Oh, I agree. The I... base level story is so good and well done that you don't need to do a whole lot mm-hmm. to make it work. Yeah. And because we know he can adapt something really well, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that he looked at this and went, this isn't going to work. I agree. There are some language things I don't love, but they are pulled from the book. And so in terms of adapting a book that I really loved, the movie feels very faithful. 
by language things do you mean in terms of like offensiveness or do you mean in terms of it just feels wrong it it feels kind of stunted okay i got you the offensive stuff is more of uh, a period issue it's more of a period thing one of the things that i remember them talking about was you know we're located in texas and this was oklahoma so when they talked about landscaped and, and environment it really did feel like where i was growing up especially the differences between the greasers and the socials i am a very privileged white lady Whatever problems I had in junior high were really about just social things. It had nothing to do with like economic status. I just like I never had the right clothes. I didn't fit in with the popular people. So I personally felt like an outsider in my given environment. So I identified with that. That made me feel good. Like it was like, oh, it's a story about the people who just don't fit in, which was great for me. I do like the story and I do like the framework of like we start with him reflecting on this time and we end with him fully writing the story of what we've seen. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind. Paul Newman and a ride home. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's a very classic mm-hmm. coming of age style story that Francis does a really good job yeah. of hewing to that without going overboard. So with Francis Ford Coppola, we're not going to go through his credits. We've talked about them before. And, you know, the big ones. Godfather Apocalypse Now. Those are the ones that you really just need to know about. A school class in Fresno, California is responsible for him making this movie. The class voted that Coppola was the director they would like to see direct the book. The school sent him a letter and a copy of the book. He read the book, read the letter, and was so moved that he made this movie. And then he made Rumblefish, which is the sort of sequel to The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I think that's amazing. I'm I'm not shocked. No. He is the kind of guy who would get sucked into something like that and yes. be obsessed with Like, he's crazy, but he's also a teddy bear. He is eccentric. And I say that in the very classical definition. Because he's very realistic and practical when it comes to making stuff. We see that in Hearts of Darkness. Oh my god, yes. He's going crazy, but at the same time, he's also just like, I don't fucking care, let's just do it. Yeah. The eccentricity is what comes out with him. Mm. He's very understanding and a apparently a great director to work with as an actor. Yeah. Actors really trust him when they're working with him because he shows compassion and tries to treat them well yes and i'm not surprised in the least that something like that would make him do that because i mean he started his whole career by trying to completely subvert the movie studio system yeah so he's willing to take a wild ass risk Mm -hmm. we were recently watching something on netflix called the chef and it's reality series with john favreau and roy Choi. And they they go around cooking, whatever. But they were talking to Robert Rodriguez. And he has that same attitude. And he's just like, he's cooking pizza. And like, you're really good at this. And he's like, I learned how to learn. Because when you love something, you will figure out how to do it well. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's that attitude is that Francis just loves this thing. So he's just going to do it. Yeah. And Robert Rodriguez has also like famously resigned from the director's guild and shit because like you won't let me do this okay fuck you i'm gonna go do it anyways i mean he made el mariachi for seven thousand dollars yep his entire debut movie it's fucking nuts yep and it's considered a cult classic now what about directing this film 
So here's where I think the problem is. Mm-hmm. Everything that you think is stunted about this movie, mm-hmm. I think, comes through his direction. And more so the editing. Well, there's a whole other movie here. On the 25th anniversary, he released a new cut called The Complete Novel that includes all the scenes the fans wish had been in the movie that he actually filmed. He just cut. And those were all the scenes that the fans wanted from the book. So there's a whole chunk of this. Like this movie could have been a lot longer. I don't I don't I have the specifics in here later. But yeah, there's a whole other movie in here. I want that movie. Yeah. Because I appreciate the choices. Yeah. In trying to visually tell the story mm-hmm. instead of narrate it. Mm-hmm. Because if it was Pony Boy narrating this whole story, yeah. then it would get really old really fast. Mm-hmm. And Francis is a talented enough director to just give us the visual cues. Yeah. And stylistically, what when I talk about bold choices, this feels like a 1950s melodrama. Oh, yeah. In the best way. Yes. He is taking all those cues from Rebel Without a Cause mm-hmm. and all these James Dean movies, all these classic teen 50s things that work so, so well. Mm-hmm. The problem is... I am missing a ton of context for character decisions because we move so lightning fast. Yeah. We get barely any time with the Curtises. Like, yeah. I need way more of dairy we, yeah. and soda pop. We should have had more understanding of what his home life was. Oh, yeah. Like, I like how quickly we, we get to my parents are dead. And this is stressful. And my brother, like my one brother is trying to keep us all from being taken away. And my other brother dropped out of school. Like, I get it. Like, I like how quickly they give us that. But we should have seen more home dynamics for why it was so easy for him to be like, I'm running away. At first, when you talk about this, I want to talk about the acting feels hammy. But it's not that the acting feels hammy. It's the edit of the movie. If we had the context, Mm -hmm. these would feel a lot more. I, I go back to it you would feel a lot the same mm-hmm. way that you feel about James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, where you have all that context and you feel that rawness of emotion from him. I will say that I absolutely love when Ponyboy recites the Robert Frost poem because it is a perfect, perfect homage to Gone with the Wind. The leaf subsides to leaf. So eat and say to grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. Which mm. is the book that they're reading. Yeah. Which I also love because I love Gone with the Wind. Scarlett O'Hara is the original housewife. She just is. It's amazing. That's a discussion for another day. We're go- I'm going to make you watch that. I know we've both seen it, but we're going to watch that because that discussion is worth having on mic. <laughs> like, like a, let's have a meaty sit down conversation about that film. It is worth it. I'm going to make you talk about Citizen Kane then. Fuck. I've never seen that. I accept this. Challenge. I accept this challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. We're going to make this decision once okay. and for all. Okay. It'll happen. That's going to be an epic. I think that's our double feature right there. It's our battle. It's a film battle. Woo. Battle of the film classics. I just, I appreciate all of the stylistic choices he made. Mm-hmm. And I think my biggest problem is it's undercut by some of the editing choices, which I know he's not the editor mm-hmm. credited, but he is he's very definitely con- in that room. <laughs> yeah, he's a very controlling dude. And not in a bad way. Just in a, this is my thing. And so for him to make those choices just feels, it, it undermined a lot of 
stuff that I needed in order to feel a lot more for these characters. Well, there some I think there is some of that that is also that the we have super green a cast. We have super green actors. So we got to get into our cast. <laughs> that which, is that is the biggest chunk of everything for this. Yeah. Up top, the audition process for this film was nuts because all of the actors were able to read for most of the roles and several of them all together on a soundstage. Coppola would go through a specific scene several times, switching people out for different parts, which, you know, the actors would read until he made a decision, which this is very common in the theater, especially when you've got a big ensemble is to be like, you know, what? I got a lot of people that are all great and I got to get them in the right role, like, especially when you're playing a family that is one thing I thought about this movie. This feels like a play. It does. And it does make a great play. I did that in high school, too. Yeah. This this feels so much like a stage production. It really does. In a lot of ways. And not, not in a bad way at no, all. No, 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 no. After C. Thomas Howell, Patrick Swayze, Emilio Estevez, Daryl Dalton, and William Smith, not Will Smith, filmed this movie, the same group teamed up again next year with Estevez's brother, Charlie Sheen, in Red Dawn which we are going to cover next. Mm-hmm. It is unlikely that there's any other motion picture film in American history, we have not found it yet, that featured and introduced more young actors in the early stages of their career that will later go on to star in their own films and be successful. There are no less than eight cast members that became major names. We have Cruz, Swayze, Dylan, Macchio, Lowe, Lane, Estevez, and Howell. And that's that's just the people who got crazy big there's other people in this movie too yeah this is insane i love it it's the best we're gonna start with c thomas howell as Ponyboy curtis our narrator main dude before this he played tyler in et that's right he is in et mm-hmm. oh he, yeah he's just thomas howell credit. he's like the older kid in that one okay geez Ooh. yeah after this he did red dawn he is in a ton of of television tv has been and tv movies have been his bread and butter so i just pulled out the big ones that i recognized he was in kindred the embraced on tv avalanche the million dollar kid amazon burning down the house the grind southland criminal minds grim girlfriend's guide to divorce stitchers ray donovan the punisher animal kingdom seal tv and then he will be in the upcoming film dauntless he is a lesser known but still big deal 80s actor. You know who he reminds me of so much when I look at his career and his performance? Uh-huh. Anthony Michael Hall. Interesting. It's a little different only because of how they started. True. No, no, true. But especially since like Anthony Michael Hall looks totally different from what he looks like as a teenager. And C. Yeah. Thomas Howell looks almost identical. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when I look at their careers... Like when they started and their careers, it's like, oh, this is very similar. Yeah. Very similar. I think he's one of those very under the radar, underrated, Mm -hmm. but so great actors. He is appropriately green in this film. I think he's exactly perfect for Ponyboy Curtis. He's so good. Yeah, he really is. There's a sweet, like he's, he's the younger brother who has not yet been fully hardened by what has happened to him. There's still something in there. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. The older boys, they've all been hardened by all of this shit. And he's still sweet. And that's what Cherry latches on to. Anyway, you think the Sosh have it made? The rich kids. The South Side Sosh. Well, I'll tell you something, Pony Boy, and it might come as a surprise, but things are rough all over. 
you seem like a nice boy. What's different about you? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Ugh. he's incredibly good in this movie. I love it. Would you like some Who Could Have Been Better? Sure. Val Kilmer was offered the role of Ponyboy, but he turned it down due to a theatrical commitment. Timothy Hutton was considered for the role of Ponyboy. Oh, Curse. boy, that would have been good. That would have been good. Timothy Hutton's great. He, he would have also been really good as one of the brothers because he's pretty. He's pretty. He would have been good for Soda Pop. All right. Next, we have Matt Dillon as Dallas Winston. Before this, he was in Over the Edge Little Darlings. After this, he went on to star in the sequel Rumblefish. Then The Flamingo Kid, Rebel, A Kiss Before Dying, Singles, which we've also covered on this show. Beautiful Girls, In and Out, Wild Things, and Something About Mary and Crash. How do we feel about him? I really didn't like him until we got to the end. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I really loved where they went with his character. I do, too. I liked because you just like, oh, he's the criminal ladies man of the group, which you got to have one in a gang. You got to have the guy who's both. <laughs> like for a while, he's just annoying compared to the rest of the actors. A lot of what I see for him initially is just really eye rolly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he makes this turn when they lose Johnny into such realness and depth. And so I don't know if it's just he's missing something in how he's acting or in the context. Mm-hmm. Or again, if the edit is ruining some of that and we've lost all of the setup for his character to really buy into him. Mm. This is definitely one that I'm like, if I had a lot more about him, a lot more about Dallas, mm-hmm. I could latch on to him being that character more. Yeah. After Matt Dillon auditioned for the part of Dallas, Coppola sent him home. Said, like, you can go home now. And Dillon thought he did not get the part. And he called his agent and told him he didn't get the part. But later it turned out that Coppola sent him home early because he already knew he was going to cast him as Dallas. (laughs) While shooting a particular scene, he was 18 years old. He kept goofing off. And Coppola was pissed at him. Swore at him and called him an airhead. And Hinton told him he needed to apologize to get Dillon to cooperate. Like, you heard his ego. Be nice. And... Coppola ended up being so fond of him that he cast him in Rumblefish. Do you want someone who could have been batters? Well, of course I do. Judd Nelson. Man, Maybe. there was a time when Maybe. Judd Nelson was great. Not anymore. Adam Baldwin. Uh, I, can we just say no because I don't like him as a human? I know, but he's he's Jane, the hero of Canton. He's the he's the other Matt Dillon. Like that's true. <laughs> Dennis Quaid. Quaid turned the role down in order to appear in the right stuff, which we also covered for this podcast. He was really great in the right he, stuff. He, I will not fault him for that. No, he made the right choice. And your favorite person to talk about possibly being in a role, Nicholas Cage. <laughs> I'll say my line like I say every time. I don't know if it'd have been good, but it would have been interesting. There's- and in this one. I could have rolled with it. I would have loved him as Johnny. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. No, not Johnny. Not not at this age, but Johnny would be good. Also, he's Francis's nephew. <laughs> I would have really... Honestly, you know what Nicolas Cage would have been good as? Hmm. Steve. Tom Cruise's role. Nick Cage uh, could have pulled that off. The maybe. wild guy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a funny little story. He did some method acting for the part by locking himself in a room for two weeks, drinking beer and staring at a photograph of Charles Bronson. He was hoping... That the physical and mental attitude of playing a thug would rub off on him. Coppola turned him down and told him to audition for the part of Two Bit, which is Emilio Estevez. Mm-hmm. But Cage was so fed up at this point from all of his hard work being in vain that he walked away. That's that, Nicholas Cage. Yeah, that's Nicholas Cage. Again, I really appreciate anytime I see him, 
The movie could be bad, but he is fascinating to watch. I don't disagree. There's a reason why he's become a legend, and it's just because he commits so fucking fully. Just pay your taxes, dude. Eh, he, he's working on it. All right, next we have Ralph Macchio as Johnny Cade. Before this, he was on Eight is Enough on TV. And after this, he did Karate Kid 1, 2, and 3, My Cousin Vinny. He was on Ugly Betty. He was in Hitchcock, The Deuce. And of course, he's in the YouTube series Cobra Kai. Is it weird to say that I think he gives one of my favorite performances in this movie? Yeah, because I don't like him. I really like him. I don't. I think he's... This, he's probably the actor that I feel like is too green for his role. I don't think so because at him, all. Because him next to C. Thomas Howell, who I feel is perfect for his role, I feel like he feels fumbly and not in a good way. And I love Ralph Macchio. I do. I really do. No, I think, I think Macchio is doing the perfect, innocent, yet caught in a horrible situation performance here. He feels like a kid, and that's what I love about it. He really feels like a kid who is terrified of what's going on around him. We're all proud of you, buddy. It's going to be all right. Holy boy. Stay gold. Holy boy. I just don't love his performance. I just don't. And that's that's okay. Not too long ago, Ralph Macchio was asked, you know, what was his favorite character that he played? And he said, Johnny, because that was a role that I really wanted and I booked it. So that was a special place in his heart. Who could have been better? Anthony Michael Hall and Scott Baio. Again, no to Scott Baio because of what a horrible human he is now. Anthony Michael Hall could have been interesting because this is still, it's the same thing with Full Metal Jacket. This is still before anybody knew who he was or what he anybody was of. and anybody had pegged him as the nerd. Mm-hmm. So had he done this, it could have been a very different career trajectory for him. True. He's done fine. Oh, he, yeah. He was Principal Featherhead on Riverdale. It's great. But if I was <laughs> going to if I was going to pick anybody besides Machio, Anthony Michael Hall would have been really good. All right, next we have the reason we're doing this whole thing. It's Patrick Swayze as Daryl Derry Curtis. Hey, what's up, Patrick? It's Patrick Swayze. Okay, so I'm just going to hit like the big stuff. Before this, he was in Skate Town USA, MASH, and a couple of TV movies. After this, he was in The Renegades, Red Dawn. Which we're covering. North and South, the miniseries, Young Blood, Dirty Dancing. Which we're covering. Roadhouse. Which we're covering. Ghost, which we covered. In, yeah. our, in our Oscar series, Point Break. Which we are covering. That's going to be a Patreon exclusive. Ooh, sign up. That one should be fun. Because we're going to do both. <laughs> and then he was in Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmore in 1995, which David has not seen, so it is on our list to be done at some point. He was 29 years old when he made this film, <laughs> which is nine years older than the character. So that whole, what we were talking about, you you could be older and still look younger, it's okay, but if you don't, it stands out. And he really does look like he's 20. Yeah, he's convincing as older brother. Yes. I never knew if he was like a full-on adult. Mm -hmm. Which he clearly was. But he doesn't read as 29, he reads as 23, 24, and desperately trying to hold the house down. Just just young. He reads exactly the way his character needs to read. Yeah, regardless of whatever number that is. 
I meant to say this with Machio that I wonder how much the full edit gives more context mm-hmm. to that performance yeah. and to that greenness. Deary, and, and we'll talk about it with Rob Lowe, these two characters get so underserviced by the edit of this movie. Yeah. We have no time whatsoever to spend with them. Mm-hmm. And we go zero to 60 in five seconds. Some of that's the melodrama. I get that. But I want a whole lot more story so I can feel a bigger connection to why Derry is so wild and invested in the gang, even though he's also really wanting to protect his brothers. Yeah. Like, I need more of that conflict for him. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think Patrick's doing a great job of fulfilling that style on screen. Like, you get, like, he's under a lot of stress, and then when he, like, you know, he pushes and kind of punches his brother, which is not good. No. But then he instantly is like, oh, what am I doing? And he's very regretful. Like, you, like I, f- I feel it's genuine. That scene at the hospital is, yeah. you can just see the pain on his face. Yeah. And like I said, it's over the top, but you feel it on a it's gut a, level. It's okay. And, and it's honestly indicative of what he does as an actor mm-hmm. throughout most of his career. So I only have one who could have been better. Mickey Rourke auditioned for the role of Derry. Kovala thought he wasn't right. So he used him in Rumblefish instead. Man, there was a time when Mickey Rourke was going to be the biggest fucking actor in the universe. Yeah. And then he decided to go be a wrestler. At some point, if we get to a movie that covers him, I've heard the stories of all the roles he turned down. Mm -hmm. And it is fucking insane. Some of the huge franchises that he had on his plate and he decided he didn't want to do. Well, maybe he just got a taste of fame and was like, no. No, thank you. I think it was more drugs and alcohol. Well, that could have been part of it. It's like, I got enough money to do my drugs and alcohol. Y'all can fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, I can appreciate that attitude, too. Next, we have Rob Lowe as Soda Pop Curtis. Before this, he was in A New Kind of Family on TV. And then he went on to be in St. Elmo's Fire, Wayne's World, The Stand, Austin Powers, West Wing, Dr. Vegas, Brothers and Sisters, Parks and Rec, The Grinder, and then he will be on a TV series called Wild Bill later this year. This is his film debut. He's so dreamy. It's so pretty. And he looks the exact same. That man has aged perfectly. God, he's so dreamy, though. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on to his actual acting. I really do like him. We don't have enough time with him. No, you, he, you don't get enough of him. But when we do, he's genuinely compelling to watch. Well, what's interesting is that he also auditioned for the role of Randy Anderson, which is one of the Soches. But he did not want a role. He did not want to play a Soche in a movie about the Greasers. And he even considered lowering his performance level, like doing a shitty job in the Randy audition so that he would seem like a better fit for the soda pop role. But again, I think when you look at Swayze and Lowe and then Howell as a family, they fit. It looks right. And that is where that switching them out in the room, having seeing them all together and playing off each other. So it's like, yeah, this works. Yeah. This this works better. He just feels like the aw shucks all American guy. Mm-hmm. Different from the greenness of Pony Boy, who has this edge and has this sort of turmoil inside. Soda Pop is like above it all. Mm-hmm. He's a greaser and he's going to fight for the greasers, but he's also seems like that kid who's going to make it out of that town and go be whoever he wants to be. Yeah. He's just like, I just have to get through this. Because he's so pretty. <laughs> he's the pretty boy. He could do whatever he wants. It's true. He's going to be loyal to his family and his gang, but I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. Yeah. I just wanted so much more. <laughs> oh, I agree. Uh, next, we have Emilio Estevez as Tubit Matthews. Before this, he was in Badlands and Tex. 
After he was in The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, Stakeout, Young Guns 1 and 2, Mighty Ducks 1, 2, and 3. And then he was in the movie The Public, which he also directed. Yeah, he's directed a few movies in the past few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of been his thing. He's, you know, staying low. He's son of, you know, Martin Sheen. He approached his character as a laid back guy. And he is the one who thought up his interest in Mickey Mouse, which is why he's wearing the Mickey Mouse shirt. Another one of the low-key best performances in this movie. Very good. I don't like all the yucky with the girls, but he's very chill. You know what's funny, though, is at, I the yuck was the initial approach, mm-hmm. but after five seconds, he's almost more of like a big brother. He's being a little bit yucky, but the girls get catch on pretty quick that he's doing it to embarrass the kids. Mm-hmm. He is very much the greaser that everybody could get along with. Like if a social wanted to go, you know, buy a knife from a greaser, he'd sell it to him in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. He's he's so fucking great. He's just so natural. He he has that quality that his dad has. That it's just like, hi, I'm in a room and I'm going to enjoy everybody in it. Like I can hold court if I want to. Like that's that's just a quality that Martin Sheen has. But he also smolders like his oh, dad too. Oh, he can when he needs to. Yeah. All right. Next we have Tom Cruise as Steve Randall. Before this, he was in Endless Love and Taps, and after this, he was in Losing It, Risky Business, All the Right Moves in 1983. Then A Few Good Men, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, Top Gun, Maverick in 2020. He's yeah. Tom Cruise. He's Tom Cruise. We've talked about him before a couple of times. We covered Rain Man, and then we also did Eyes Wide Shut. On Patreon. Yes. This is classic, early, wild man Tom Cruise. So this was his only film of 83 that he was not in the starring role. Yeah. He also did Risky Business, Losing It, and All the Right Moves in 83. This was his last supporting role until he did Magnolia. In 1999. Mm-hmm. That's insane. I mean, he he took off. I mean, okay. I think if you look at all the actors, he has had the most successful career. Oh, money yeah. money wise, oh box office draw cool. wise, and that's not that's not shitting on any of the other actors because they're all amazing. They've just taken different routes. Part of that is he became such a bankable star. He also started producing those films, and that just skyrocketed yeah. like crazy. And he's not a bad actor. He's oh, not. No, no. He's great, and he's great in what he does. He's a very specific type of actor. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is you get a glimpse right here of had he not been sort of morphed into a leading man, he could have been a wild-eyed character Mm -hmm. actor style. Mm -hmm. It was during this film that he got the script for Risky Business, and Diane Lane says that Tom Cruise asked her to play Lana in Risky Business, but her father said there was no way in hell she was going to play a hooker in his movie. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Next, we have Diane Lane as Cherry Valens. Before this, she was in A Little Romance, Touched by Love, Six Pack Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. After this, she went on to be in Rumblefish, Streets of Fire, Lonesome Dove, Chaplin. My Dog Skip, The Perfect Storm, The Glass House, Unfaithful, Under the Tuscan Sun, Must Love Dogs, Man of Steel, Inside Out, House of Cards. She's Diane fucking Lane. She's the shit. So young. So young. She also has barely aged. And just like Emilio, so natural. Just, yeah, very natural. Loved her. She just has full command and presence Mm -hmm. every time she's on screen. Yeah. She's really good. And again, wanted more, especially Mm -hmm. later. We have a lot of her early in the movie, and then she just kind of disappears. And I'm like, 
she her character needs to get peppered throughout the rest of this movie there's, as something to come back to. Yeah, there's definitely more of her in the book. Okay, so who could have been better? Sarah Jessica Parker turned down the role to play Cherry. Not quite. Heather Langenkamp auditioned for the role and has a cameo as one of the girls in the drive-in, but it was cut. Nah. She could have been good. She could have been. I love Diane Lane. I'm not going to separate. I'm not going to get rid of Diane Lane, but Heather Langenkamp could have been good. I mean, based off of what I saw in Nightmare on Elm Street, I can't justify replacing Diane Lane off of that because it's not that great. And then Brooke Shields turned down to play Dale in Sahara instead. Huh. Hmm. Brooke Shields could have been good. Because she also, I don't know if Diane Lane was a teenager at this point, but Brooke Shields definitely was Mm -hmm. and would have the same amount of presence, but would have been the perfect age. Oh, she would have been great. Next, we have Leif Garrett as Bob Sheldon. Before this, he was in Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, had a bunch of TV spots. He was in Walking Tall 1 and 2, Skateboard, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. More TV. And then after this, this is a lot of blah, 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 but he was in Dickie Roberts as himself. Well, yeah. have you ever seen the Behind the Music with Leif Garrett? Nope. I don't really know who Leif Garrett is. Oh, boy. Yeah. He was a Tiger Beat teen pop star. I know. That got I know that. way into drugs and wound up being responsible for the drunk driving death of a friend or something. Like, So he was the most famous cast member. <laughs> at the time the other cast members could not stand him oh yeah well he was totally whacked out on yeah. drugs and alcohol like mm-hmm. that was his big problem mm-hmm. but i mean he's perfect for playing the biggest asshole in the movie yeah <laughs> oh yeah and then we have two arpons we have tom waits as buck merrill he gets 30 seconds of screen time and he's just perfect in in the movie and then flea is playing one of the searches interesting i missed him flea shows up in the weirdest places it's great i love it oh and then of course we've got darren dalton as randy anderson i actually really liked him in this he was okay he just wasn't in it enough for me to care i i love his scene with pony boy yeah all right whatever all right now we're gonna get into trivia trivia in the poster for the film the greasers are shown laughing as like and johnny's like smirking this is a candid shot taken during the photo session. They're supposed to be looking tough in front of the camera. And what happened was Leif Garrett was off camera messing with the food. And one of the stagehands said, don't get in that. Save it for the actors. And then Ralph Macchio said, yeah, Leif, save it for the actors. And they all laughed. And that's the photo that they used. Except I'm looking at it. Emilio Estevez stayed in character, didn't break. Well, I what I like that is I think that's a better depiction of the relationship of these boys. Yes. So, and that's what you need in the poster. You don't need to see a bunch of tough kids. You need to see that they actually like. There's a relationship going on here. I think that's a Francis choice. I if hope. I'm perfectly honest, yeah. He went like, no, wait, this is way better. It, it is so indicative of who they are as characters as opposed to who they are like in life. Or in, in what people think of them. Uh-huh. Uh, during filming, the actors playing the Soches were given leather-bound scripts and were put up in luxury accommodations, while the greasers were given battered paperback scripts and had to stay on the ground floor level of a hotel because Coppola wanted to create tension between the two groups. Which, that shit only works with teenagers. That shit only works with young kids who have never been in movies before. It works with young kids, but also... That is a responsible way to create that environment. 
Especially with some of these actors who really do thrive in that sort of method frameology. But that's what I'm saying. This really only works with green actors. Established actors, you can't get away with that unless you know that that would work with them. So in the scene where the boys are getting excited for the rumble, Tom Cruise does the standing backflip off of a truck. Patrick Swayze coached him on how to do that. Uh huh. But right before he was so nervous. So they went up to Hinton and it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I, I, I'm I, nauseous. I ate too much at lunch. And Hinton's like, well, would you feel better if you threw up? And he's like, yeah, maybe. So she took him to the food truck and they made him eat raw eggs until he threw up. And then he did it without a problem. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. But entertaining. God, that whole scene was so fucking West Side Story with Swayze doing the the flip over the fence. And I was like, oh, my God, all the ballet. Okay. It's kind of funny you say that. So I did a little research on S.E. Hinton. She has stated that one of her big influences in writing The Outsiders was West Side Story. <laughs> so I find it very funny that you you pick up on that. While Ponyboy and Johnny are best friends in the film and the novel, C. Thomas Howell did not get along with Ralph Macchio. He says he was very serious and professional and he remembers a very specific argument dealing with him wanting to beat his high score on Pac-Man and Macho demanding that they rehearse their lines. And the difference they they decided was that Howell was 16 and Macho was 20. Yeah, that makes sense. That would that would change things. The actors pulled some pranks in the hotel where they stayed shooting during the movie. And a couple years later, Tom Cruise would introduce to someone who said that he worked at the hotel at that time. And Cruise was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. They played a lot of pranks for Rob Lowe's 18th birthday, which happened during shooting. They saran wrapped his toilet and filled his whole hotel room with fire extinguishing foam. Wow. Yeah, that's pre- <laughs> pretty hardcore. That's a lot. Uh, the scene where Ponyboy, Johnny, and Tubit are walking to Johnny's house and the hat flies into the scene and Tubit goes and grabs it and says, look, I have a new hat. That belonged to a cameraman. <laughs> but Coppola liked it and he just thought it needed to stay in the movie that's Emilio just being such a good reactive actor it's one of those things where I totally understand he went the direction he did but mm-hmm. he was so good in mm-hmm. all the acting he did for the longest time and it's just like man I wish you would have just stuck around you would have done some amazing stuff C. Thomas Howell admitted in an interview many years after the movie was released that he really did have a big crush on Diane Lane during filming I'm not shocked. That's mm-hmm. Diane fucking Lane. Yeah. The employees in the concession stand scene at the drive-in were actual employees of the General Cinema Theaters, which owned the drive-in. Cool. Francis Ford Coppola received letters over the years from fans of the novel expressing disappointment that some of the key scenes were omitted. And a couple years after that, Coppola's granddaughter was reading the book in class and wanted to watch the film with her with her school friends. And Coppola was embarrassed to show it to her. So that's what made him do the director's cut, the outsiders, the complete novel. In addition to the 22 minutes of restored footage, there are additional scenes that were not included, such as an extension of the walking home introduction where the Soches accost Soda Pop and Steve at the gas station. And Derry throws some debris from the roof on the house on their cars as they drive past him. That's... 
desperately needed. Yeah. An alternate introduction to Johnny where his mother chases him out of the house with a broom. Also desperately needed. Who's then stopped by Tubit, who rushes to Johnny's aid. Again, need it. You need oh, yeah. you need more of that intertwined relationship. More stuff of Ponyboy and Johnny at the church with their hiding. Ponyboy and Derry having a fight only to be walked out on by Soda Pop. An extend- also a great thing. Yeah. Extended scene following the church fire where Ponyboy awakes and urges Soda Pop to wake up. Yeah. There's just a lot that was cut out. So yeah, I I would be curious to see the... The full version. that Those two scenes right away would have mm-hmm. given so much more context that we would have felt way more invested in those characters. Uh-huh. The line said by Dally, you'll never get me alive at the end of the film was improvised by Matt Dillon. And there are two little cameos. Sophia Coppola is the little girl who asked Dally for spare change at the at the restaurant. And then S.E. Hinton plays a nurse in the hospital. It's pretty cool. You have to come up with this rating system. I do. What am I going to do? Jeez. Hmm. Hmm. Switchblades. Gotta be, right? <sighs> trying to think. Can I come up with anything better? I want to say Gone with the Wind novels, but I won't. Okay. How many Switchblades are we going to give this film? It's my movie. I'll go first. I think this is a three because... Uh, it is relatively faithful to the book. If you've read the book, you can really enjoy the movie. But I do want to see the the complete novel version. I do really want to see that. And I think that version could be closer to a four. I totally agree. I yeah, was uh, I That's agree. exactly what I was going to say. I really like where this movie's headed. Mm-hmm. I like the ideas it's going for. The cut that we've watched undermines a bunch of the character development that I'm desperately wanting. Mm-hmm. And so I I, want to rate it higher, but I also go, there's a better version of this out there Mm -hmm. that I really need to see. Mm -hmm. And then I would be way more willing to give it a higher rating. I think that's fair. Yeah. What are we covering next? You ready to take a big old left turn? Sure. Or right turn, as it were? It's time for Red Dawn. Oh, yeah. Times two. (laughs) Because we're completionists here. So if there's a new version, we tend to watch it. So we're watching both Red Dawns. 1984 and 2012. But 2012 has Chris Hemsworth and he's so pretty. Yeah, I already know some stuff about that one, though. But he's... I don't... But he's pretty... No, these... This is going to be fascinating. Because these are some wild movies. Mm. Okay. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) ¶¶